Welcome to the SLN Podcast, where your hosts interview top industry influencers and break down the latest trends in sports, fitness, fashion, and innovation. The SLN Podcast is on now. This episode of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast is presented by Empirica. That's Empirica, E-M-P-I-R-I-K-A. Empirica exists to amplify your brand's growth a digital partner to the ambitious, a creative engine launching brands and igniting growth, the unagency where relationships matter, not transactions. Let's connect at EmpiricaMedia.com. That's EmpiricaMedia.com. Let's get the show started. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Lauren Cutshaw, and you are listening to the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. I'm super excited for today's episode for a couple of reasons. One, this is my debut show. I'd like to extend a big thank you to John, Mike, Joel, and everyone listening for the opportunity. Two, my guest is someone I've long admired. Her name is Valerie Condos Field. Val Condos is the former head coach of the UCLA women's gymnastics team. During her 29-year career, she led the Bruins to seven NCAA championship titles 18 Pac-12 championship titles, and a record of 528, 121, and 3. So basically that means she's winning 80% of the time. Interesting fact, she did all of this without ever having been a gymnast. So what does a UCLA Athletic Hall of Fame coach do when she retires? I'd love to tell you she's sipping Mai Tais on the beach, but that's not her style. Val is a published author, speaker, breast cancer survivor and advocate, and faculty member at UCLA, where she teaches transformative coaching. In today's episode, Val and I dive into her philosophy on coaching and leadership, definitions of winning and success, and the impact of COVID on college sports. We also touch on the athlete identity, mental health, and related topics brought to the forefront by documentaries like The Last Dance, Athlete A, and most recently, Michael Phelps' The Weight of Gold. Whether on the field or in the boardroom, High performers are high performers, and they are human beings. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Miss Val. I hope you enjoy it. Before I dive into some of the things with the current state and how it's impacting athletics, I just want to revisit where we were talking about the entry point to leadership and coaching as it relates to your point of view coming from dance and Sue Enquist's point of view coming from softball and hardcore athletics, as you said, dance as I know it, because my mom was actually a very um, good classical ballerina and dancer back in her day. Um, I My point of view of that sport is not dissimilar from athletics. So can you expand on that comment? Yes. Um, I think that there are so many similarities between dance and athletes. Um, and, you know, whenever I tell people I wasn't an athlete, they go, yes, you were. You were a ballerina. Um, but the biggest the biggest thing that I saw, the biggest difference was twofold. One, I did not grow up in the era where there were ballet competitions. And so I trained, I prepared simply for the joy of being able to be on stage and feeling fully prepared mentally, emotionally, and physically to perform to my best. And so there wasn't a score. There was no winning. There was not, like, I wasn't trying to be perfect because there wasn't a 10. Um, and the second thing that I noticed when I got into coaching gymnastics, and then especially when I became the head coach, was that in, in a, any great team, there is a, a team culture that is accepted by all, by the coaches, by the owners, and by the athletes. And when that culture is really healthy, that's when the magic happens. But I've been on plenty of teams, or I've had plenty of teams, where we had a ton of talent, but we really didn't have a cohesive culture, and we did not do very well at all. So um, those are the two biggest differences that I noticed going from the world of ballet into the world of sports. Well, and the world of sports right now and culture, I know for a lot of us, it's very top of mind and very present. And there's multiple dynamics going on right now. We have one, this pandemic, which has essentially halted sports. And 
you know, when I think about my days as a college athlete, you know, the pros are one thing, but college, you're not doing it for money. You're doing it for love. You're doing it for sport. You're doing it for team. And there were these seasons that were cut short, which I find incredibly heartbreaking, particularly for the seniors. Layer that with the larger issue of will we have college athletics and sports in general? This is a loaded three-level question. So I'm just going to put it all out there and we'll take the, take the pieces that we stick and run with them. But so we have one piece of seasons taken away Two, what does season look like in 2020 to 2021? Um, will programs, some programs will say fold if the big revenue sports are not bringing in that, bringing in the revenue to the department. Um, and then on a related topic that I want to get to later, I think one thing that's really interesting that has surfaced during this time is a lot of big reveals about the elite athletic world and the culture of sport to the general public. And I'll say those reveals are in ESPN doing their 30 under 30. We have the last dance and we have Lance. We had athlete A with Maggie Nichols and Larry Nasser. And then just recently, Michael Phelps and team dropped the weight of gold. And I think a lot of this, your comments around culture and the work you're doing in the world today in leadership, which I really wanna dive into, all tap into these three themes and culture and leadership is really the mental state state and sport is the execution the fun and the result and somehow we've lost our way in my opinion um in all of that so i don't know if there's a piece of those three layers that really speak to you and you want to expand on but i would love to hear briefly your thoughts on each Yes, and I and I think that they do all obviously interrelate. Um, the first thing is, I was asked about a month ago a very telling question that has that made me do a lot of uh, thinking, and I almost said internal thinking. It's like where else am I going to think? Um, but <laughs> internal thinking, and since then have thought about it and have and have posed the question to other coaches and athletes, and that is. If I was coaching today and if I was told that we were not going to have a competitive season this year, but knowing how important it is to get your athletes, to keep them competitively sharp, would I coach differently today than I did the last 37 years? And I honestly feel that especially how my coaching style evolved over the last, we'll say 10 years, where I really focused on developing these champions in life, these superheroes through sport, that I, I honestly believe I would coach exactly the same way because I coach to get 1% better each day, to develop not just the body, but the mind, the spirit, the emotional discipline, all of that. And regardless of whether we're going to have a competition season or not. And I would, I would instill, I would make a competitive schedule, you know, just of, of um, intra squads so that they can keep their competitive edge. And I would find a way to get them hungry to, to want to win those intra squads. So that was, that's, I think that's a really interesting question um, because just like us, all of us in the world, now we've been in COVID, is it four months, five months? It feels like five years. Um, but I had, I've heard so many people say, I'm just waiting for this to be over. And it's like, well, you're, you're literally wasting not just months, but a day of your life waiting for something to be over. So instead of like, instead of just trying to get through this, you know, I've, I felt from the very beginning, I'm going to grow through this. I'm going to find a way to really work on all the things that I didn't have quote unquote time to work on before and grow through this time, regardless of how long it's going to take. Um, and I feel the same way about sports. We're not just asking our athletes to get through the time till COVID's over and they can start training with their teams, but what do you do in a day to grow through this experience? And, you know, in college, everything's going to revolve around football. If football doesn't play, we're told nothing is going to, no, no sports are going to play. 
And so what are you going to do? You're just going to say, okay, bye-bye. I'll, I'll show up next year. No, you got to get better. You have to find a way to get better mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Um, and look at it as a gift where you have time to work on your weaknesses. You really have time to really ruthlessly work on those weaknesses that you may, that you normally would not have enough time for, because especially in college, you only have them for four hours a day. That includes all the team meetings, it includes everything that they're asked to do. So now you've got this luxury of time. Um, the other thing that, that definitely resonates, and I think not just with us in sports, but um, you know, anybody who is really paying attention and listening to what happened with the Larry Nassar survivors, Athlete A, Last Dance, um, at the Cost of Gold, Heavy Metals, all of this, um, they're all telling basically the same underlying theme is that athletes are commodities for a win. And the underlying question to all of those scenarios is at what cost? And in this course that I taught last quarter at UCLA on transformative coaching and leadership, we studied a different successful coach every single week for 10 weeks. One of the coaches we discussed was uh, Bobby Knight. And I had... Uh, as our guest, Steve Alford, who was our basketball coach at UCLA, I had him join us as a guest, and he played for Bobby Knight for six years um, at, at Indiana and, and uh, on the U.S. team for the Olympics. And he was able to literally kind of use his mind as a sieve and let all of the negative talk pass through him. He didn't use his mind as a sponge and just hung on to everything that Bobby said and did, excuse me, coach Knight said and did. Um, but he really just took the important things on how to become a better basketball player from him. He was able to do that. Uh, but literally when you read the books about Bobby Knight, like starting on page three and throughout the whole book, his players would say, yeah, we won, but at what cost? So let's let's talk about that piece because I think the cost I think a lot of corporate leaders, right, go for profit, growth and all these other things and we have the at what cost and there's so many parallels in the business world and the athletic world. Um and I, I just wanna let everybody know, you know, you talk about this course at UCLA and this transformative leadership. Can you just back up for a moment and explain what that is and the pillars of the program? and how you are really shaping leaders of tomorrow still, even though you're not actively coaching? Yeah, and I think that's a fabulous question because transformative coaching and leadership has a nice little mellifluous ring to it. Um, but I never really thought about exactly what it meant. And I was on a discussion, I was in a discussion uh, for UCLA with coach Sewanquist, softball coach, um, legend. And she is also teaching a course at UCLA under that umbrella. And she asked me point blank, you know, what is transformative coaching and leadership to you? And I, I kind of was deer in the headlight cause I hadn't really dissected it. And what was, where I was getting caught up was when you talk about transformative coaching, are you talking about transforming the athlete or is transformative coaching a coach who continues to transform? And then I had my little aha moment. I was like, well, duh, it's both. So when the coach continues to have this growth mindset and continue to get better and the true, the true definition of transform change, when a coach continues to change, they're going to coach the athlete in different ways to do the same, to achieve excellence. And when the two of those come together, that's when the magic happens. Yeah, one of the things that you shared with me in a previous conversation we had, and I love this line, is you have not taught until they have learned. And, yeah. you know, there's so many great sound bites that we'll revisit in a, in a minute here. Um, 
but going back to the class and all these coaches you study, can you talk about some of the common leadership themes? I think what they're all very different. They're all true to themselves. They all have a different style, but what are some of these repetitive themes that you see in some of the best coaches, which in turn, I think are very similar to what we see in the best leaders. Yeah. And that's exactly what we talked about at the last day of class, because we studied, we studied, we studied Phil Jackson, Bobby Knight, Sue Enquist, Pat Summit, Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, of course, John Wooden, myself, uh, and Tony Dungy. And all of those, I chose those coaches because they had all reached the pinnacle of success in the world of athletics, but they, I chose them because their personalities and coaching styles were so different that I think the two that there's two that were soup that were extremely, um, complimentary of each other. And those were, uh, John Wooden and Tony Dungy and mainly because of their faith. So every, their foundation is based on their faith. And the other ones were um, Bill Belichick and Dick Saban, which literally are like <laughs> the flip side of a coin. They complete each other. Um, but it was really interesting to throw the question that you threw to me out to the students in the class at the end of the quarter. And it was just so obvious that in order to achieve success in athletics, and as you mentioned, in the business world, in any venue, you need to have, there are certain commonalities. You first of all have to have a love for what you're doing. You really have to like, you love the game. If, if you're a coach, you got to love it. Second of all, you need to be prepared. You need to, to prepare yourself. Um, you need to be able to show up day one and explain to your coaching staff and to your, to your athletes what the goal of the season is. And then how we're going to achieve that goal. Um, the, the commonalities continued with, and this is what I found fascinating, is um, the true definition of integrity. And that is, you know, when you speak of integrity, you think of people that live this moral code and this high moral standard constantly. But I have always felt that integrity is knowing what you stand for, knowing what your personal moral code and foundation is, and then making sure that every action that you have is in line with that goal, with that moral foundation. So when you look at someone like Bobby Knight, I would say he has tremendous integrity because he never claimed to be anything different than what he was. And you knew as a player what you were getting when you went there. So don't complain about it if he's yelling obscenities and if he happens to grab you around the neck. You know what's going on or throw in a chair. You know, that's, that's, he has integrity. Um, and conversely, if he would have shown up and started talking about Zen Buddhism and having his athletes close their eyes and breathe and meditate like Phil Jackson did, that would not be having integrity. Right? So... I think those, that part of it was fascinating to me, that, that they all reached the pinnacle of success being true to who they are as human beings and not trying to be somebody else. Well, and I think that's where I think we all walk around, and there's obviously many books and resources on this, with some layer of a mask. And I feel like there are conversations now that are getting, you know, we've got Brene Brown talking about vulnerability and there is this opening and then COVID comes and I feel like there are any cracks in the surface that were there, you know, the light is coming through. And for some people, the light is, is quite dark. And, you know, you had shared with me um, a process you took a marketing team through. I'm shifting gears a little bit, but we'll get back to the athletic piece. I think this is such a perfect time for you to walk us through, if you will, the keep it up, step it up exercise you did, which I think was letting everybody's true colors just come through to build unity at the end of the day. It was a very unifying experiment because everyone is now, we know the non-negotiables, we know the goal, we know who we are. And from this platform of candor and transparency, we can build. And I just love what you had shared uh, about that project. So. Yes, mind. I want to share that because that 
um, came from a really good friend of mine who her name is Allison Arnold, and um, she's called Doc Alley, and she's done a lot of work with gymnasts for decades. And we brought her out to work with our team a few times. Hold on, I know Doc Alley. I went to one of her workshops. Yeah, that's keeping yeah. up. Yeah, Scream and Run Naked. She wrote that book way back in the day. How freaking <laughs> small is it? book scream and run naked i mean seriously <laughs> i've yet to do it okay I, it's, a, it's a goal in life it's a bucket list thing yeah um <laughs> and not if i'm being chased that's, that's where I, that. I keep it up step it up because it's a uh, uh basically we would do this with our team and you we would have them just pair up and just talk to each other and say lauren hey um Keep it up. You know what? You show up every day really prepared and excited to help the team get better. But where I think you need to step it up is you get down on yourself really easily. So I think that's where you could step it up. And so it's it's done in a format that is not invasive and demeaning, but it's just giving information. And then we would go switch the the girls up and they would go to another teammate and what you would find obviously is that you're hearing the same thing from the majority of the people that are doing keep it up step it up with you uh i would do the same um i'd have the same discussion with our coaching staff just like the four or five of us and it's true you know they would all say the same thing as far especially the step it up part because that's the most egregious but yeah you go Doc Alley. She's she's amazing at that. And I love it. It's got a sing song, you know, so it's not, if you tell a 10-year-old, hey, go play, keep it up, step it up. They go, oh, okay. And then was she, you had talked to me about a workshop you led with the marketing department at UCLA also. Is that of the same, is that also from Doc Alley or was that something that you created and explored? Because I thought that was extraordinarily powerful. Yeah, that was from um, that was from a team in the Netherlands, a business team, and I literally just stole this off of YouTube. And I hope that you, by now, I've I've said stolen from Doc Alley, and then you quoted me saying you've not taught until they've learned. Okay, that I stole from somebody else. I think it was Lincoln or someone like that said that a long time ago. Coach Wooden used to say that all the time. But I think that I just want to take a little commercial break right now that everything that we know, we've learned from someone else. So thank you for giving me credit for all this. But I, I get credit for it simply because I'm a voracious reader and I am a consummate learner. So um, that's none of, none of these are original ideas, <laughs> but they work. Uh Yes, I was asked by our external marketing group at UCLA, and I think there was like 150 of them. They were, they just felt the morale around the entire department was low, and there was not a lot of trust. And so I just went on YouTube and pulled up leadership uh, uh, projects that you could do, processes that you could do with your team, strategies, and this and that. And it was a very simple one that I tried and it worked so well that I've used this now with maybe 10 different groups that have asked me to come in and help with restructuring the morale and getting people to open up and talk and trust. And it literally was, we put all 150 of them, we were on the floor of Poly Pavilion. We put everybody in a big round circle, all of them. And you just start asking questions and you start with the most innocuous ones that aren't going to be make anybody feel uncomfortable. And it was like, all right, step into the center of the circle if you've ever skinny dipped. And then, you know, you're inevitably you're getting people stepping in the circle that you never thought would skinny dip. And and then then you ask, would any of you like to talk about it or share it? And then one or two people will. And you go, thank you. Step out again. Okay, step in the circle if you've ever um, if you have a tattoo. And then people, you know, like, I think this like 150 year old man said he had a tattoo and it was like, you do. And he's like, you want me to show you? And I was like, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. But you know, everybody laughed the whole bit. Great. And then you work your way up to the really hardcore questions such as, okay, step in a circle. If you've ever been bullied 
And then, okay. And then would you like to, to speak about it? And every time I've done this, whether it's been like with our gymnastics team, which is like 20 girls or with this 150 people, people will start sharing and they'll say, yeah, I was bullied. Like, um, and they'll call the person out that bullied them, but it's in a respectful way because we're in a controlled environment and then, okay, step out, step in the circle. If you have ever bullied yourself if you've been the one bullying and inevitably almost every single person steps into the circle. And this is when the tears start flowing. This is when people start becoming vulnerable. And then I always finish with, um, and I think actually I did not get this. I think I'll take credit for this question on my own. Um, step in the circle. If there's something that you have wanted to say to someone for a really long time that you wish you had the courage to say to their face. And that's when it gets really raw and real and the tears and the sobbing. And, um, and literally, you know, we would break from that. I would wrap it up. And then without me saying or guiding anything, they would just seek each other out and, and hug it out. The people that bullied each other were the ones that wanted to say something to them. And it was extremely powerful. Yeah, I think that's, you know, this kind of brings me back to, um, you know, first off, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really excited to watch the Michael Phelps documentary on HBO called The Way to Gold. And I was watching, uh, I found on YouTube, YouTube, I mean, we're like plugging them. We should probably ask them for some money here. Um, but I was watching, I think it was called Real Talk or something. And it was, one of the athletes just said something so simple, but she said, you know, we were, as athletes, we were not given really time to process because they were, you know, they, they do something in microphones or in their face and they're constantly giving the answer they're supposed to give, right? We go to work and we do what we think we're supposed to do. And the mere act of taking a pause and being like, and realizing someone else is like, actually, I don't know how I feel either because I've never had time to process this or I feel the exact same way about being bullied or not being bullied or feeling like my boss or my coach thinks I'm expendable. But we just, we are so afraid to actually share how we are feeling. And at the end of the day, I feel like it, it's such a disservice because that's, I think it's the source of a lot of mental illness and anguish of, of feeling alone, feeling unseen, unheard. No one understands me. And, you know, those two simple exercises that you just shared, I think, you know, how do we get more people, more coaches, more leaders adopting and talking about some of these topics? Well, I, I don't think that, I, I believe the only way change happens in anything is through education. Otherwise, if you're not educating somebody to, to be motivated to change, they're just being compliant and there's not real change happening. Um, and when you look at athletics up until maybe 10, 15 years ago, um, I just feel that the, the, the fastest and the best quote unquote way to develop a human being to become the best athlete and their sport was to strip them and to of their or of who they are of their voice and just make them soldiers good compliant loyal soldiers i mean it's the military does it and it works really well right i mean <laughs> well we're finding now it doesn't from all of the mental illness that they have but ptsd and all that but that was literally when you look at the communist way of coaching that we brought the United States, um, that was it. Just strip them of their voice and make them, I mean, from the moment they step in the gym, they stand there, you know, they don't even blink. They don't smile. They don't talk. They don't have a voice. And so when these athletes, when these elite athletes would come to our team and I would just immediately start peppering them with questions, as simple as how do you feel? They wouldn't answer because they felt it was a test and that they were going to get in trouble. So having to break that down and how do you do that by building the trust? Um, but I, I watch, I listen to just the trailer of the Mike of Michael Phelps and, and um, what is, what is that called? 
Um, the uh, director guy? No, no, no. Michael Phelps, Heart of Gold. What's it called? The Weight I think of it's Gold. Weight, the Weight of Gold. Yeah, Weight of Gold. I just listened to the, just the trailer of it. Um, but I've heard, I've heard those same stories so many times. And just like, you know, we're hearing now, yes, 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 we reached our pinnacle of success, but at what cost? I've heard for so many years that nobody cares about us in the after. In Oh, I yeah. Mean, in the after. And the after isn't just, from what they've told me, isn't just when they retire from their sport. The after starts when they're no longer viable to medal for the United States. That's when they go into the category of the after. And they're not really coached much. They're not addressed much. They're not treated even as human beings. They haven't. How did you, so I unfortunately had that experience. I was actually told by a coach and I won't say what phase of life, because if I do, people will know who I was told I was expendable <gasps> and verbally told you are expendable. And, um, when it is your job and that was devastating, obviously when it is your job to win, and when you have your lineup and certain people are not in it, what did or do you do or suggest for others to do so that other athletes, employees, call it what you will, there's always a structure of leader and uh, team. Uh, how, how do you lead and make sure your A players are doing their A player job to get the job done but then your B and your C line, B and C groups feel equally as valued and as if they are contributing, even if they are not on the field, the beam, in the presentation, or what have you. You know, I I believe in communication, 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 and I was known for having a lot of team meetings, and we rarely talked about gymnastics. We would talk about team culture and and. What does 1% better each day look for each of you? What does that look like to each one of you? Because um, the little walk-on who has maybe had three years of gymnastics is going to, her 1% better is going to look a lot different than our Olympic gold medalist, 1% better. And um, in these meetings, we would talk about, I would always use the visual of the fact that our team is a puzzle. And every student athlete, every coach, every support staff is a piece of this puzzle. And then we would identify what their role is, the value of their puzzle piece. So if you are a little walk-on who hasn't had many ex much experience in gymnastics or competing, but you show up every day and you're super excited about being on this UCLA gymnastics team and you are a workhorse and you're the first person that when Olympic gold medalist Kyla Ross is trying to spray the bars with the water bottles empty, you grab the water bottle and run and put water in it for her. And when you enumerate all these things and that person realized that, yes, they are bringing value to this team and that the team would not be complete without that puzzle piece. So the fact that somebody told you you are expendable, that a human living being is expendable, that is so archaic and whatever you want to call it, Nazi-ish, Nazi it's horrible. It's inhumane. Yeah, I mean, I grew up and competed in the era where a lot of the newer practices, um, hopefully that are going in, in place now, and honestly, I, personally, I don't have a ton of faith. I think this change is going to take a lot of time. I, you have the Olympic system. You have the NCAA. You have new school coaches, old school coaches, all these dynamics at play. But um, the, the under over for, of it was at that time exactly what you said. The moment you're not a medalist, and I wasn't going for the Olympics. This was college. But the moment you're not a medalist, the moment you're not going to get the promotion, the moment you're not, there's a lot of that, those moments in life, it's not relegated to sport. And, um, you know, I think that's a huge opportunity where we, we can do better culturally at really defining those roles and giving those roles value. Well, you know, I think, 
I, I haven't thought through this thoroughly, but just as you're speaking, I feel like change will happen. And I feel like it is happening, especially I know in the gymnastics world is happening because everybody's being transparent and revealed and you can no longer be in a gym and be verbally, mentally, or physically abusive without getting called out and calling it up to safe sport and being suspended and all that. But um, I feel like change comes from education. And then sadly, it comes from the almighty dollar. And so I was on a, another panel with Judge Rosemary Aquilina that um, listened to all the impact statements for the gymnasts, the Larry Nassar survivors. And she just keeps challenging NBC with these Olympics. Like, okay, guess what? You've given the gift of an entire, a whole nother year. So there are bills that are being passed through Congress, trying to be passed through Congress right now that are going to restructure the United States Olympic uh, and Paralympic Committee that are going to say that you've got to have at least 51% of the people on your board as athletes that were athletes so that the athletes have a voice. And so you don't have, as they mention in, um, I don't know what I was just reading, you know, mentioning this, where you don't have the coaches and the CEOs becoming millionaires off of these. Oh, it was like what I just heard on um, heavy, heavy metals and, and the athletes flying economy and barely being able to make a living if they're not meddling, especially gold meddling. Um, and she, Judge Eppelina is challenging the sponsors to pull out of the Olympics if these bills are not passed. Wow. I guess be chills. Yeah. I gotta look into that. Um, well, I, I, I do hope that you're right and I hope the change can happen sooner uh, rather than later. Um, you know, we're, we're pushing up on time here. So before we close, I just wanna ask you a couple more questions. Okay, I know that we're pushing up on time, <laughs> but I have to just make one point that I said change will happen through education and money, right? Taking it away. Change will not happen unless parents really start seeing the damage that a win at all cost culture is doing to their children. And that it doesn't take a rocket scientist to just pull up the facts that there are more reports of depression, anxiety, stress, and suicide than ever before with our youth. And that is on us, coaches, parents, leaders. And so if a, if a parent is gonna say, yeah, yeah, I love you, but then turn their back when the coach is being abusive and not hold that coach accountable to treating their child with respect, um, then that's where the problem starts and, and change will not happen as long as parents are going to value their children as to what college to get into, how many, how many points they scored in the last soccer game, and if they're going pro or not. They have to value their child as a whole human being first. So now, now my, my wrap-up is going to be on pause. Um, so back to, and not to make this about me here, but I remember as an athlete, I knew I was in a bad situation and I knew if I told my mother, she would yank me. And so I think that's a really tough spot. I mean, so my parents were clearly not the parent hanging college and, and whatnot over my head. They were very supportive, but I didn't compete for them. But I think my situation is not unique. And you have now have a child who really wants something. And, and if you, if, if everyone here is listening, watches that movie, that drive, it, it isn't, it's a maniacal focus and a narrow lane. And to be good, you have to live it. But exposing the issues that were, my mom knew something was up. I did not verbalize everything. And I didn't want to, because I knew it would have been, been taken away. And I think that is a grave responsibility and very difficult situation to put someone who is 10, 11, 12, 13 in. So what would you suggest? I understand that. And I agree with that. And I've had that conversation with athletes and their 
parents, you know, who are my, some of my closest friends here. Um, but the education isn't just for the coaches and the parents. The education is for the children as well. And when you look at what happened with the sexual abuse of the gymnast with Larry Nassar, um, I had some parents say to me that, you know, I just, I don't want my daughter to see athlete A, she's 10. And, but it's like, you know, when she goes to the doctor and the doctor uses terms with her of the biology of her, of her body and calls the different parts of her body, what they are, you should be able to have that conversation with your daughter at a young age. Well, not should be, we have to now you have to say and use the terms and use the words that when this happens, this is not okay. And this is why it's not okay. And then, you know, you let me know, I'm not going to yank you out of the gym, but I'm not going to let it continue to happen because then educate the child. Okay. Um, and I, I, there's a gym. I don't remember which one it was. I want, I wish I did. Cause I'd love to give them a shout out right now, but they have been having ongoing athlete and coach and parent education for almost 10 years now about with this. And they're a little tiny gym. And the coach told me the other day that the coach told one of this little girl's friends that was crying the whole time, you know what, you need to meet me in my office after gym and we're going to have a meeting. And her friend who's 10 years old said to the coach, wait a minute. Um, I didn't think you could have a meeting with someone just one-on-one. -on -one. So if you want me to be there, I'll be there. Or you want to tell her mom, that's okay too. And it was educating the child. It was just, and it wasn't a big deal. It was like, okay, you know, and then, and the coach was great. The coach said, you know what? You're right. And realized that it was best for him or her to have somebody else there. Um, so it's, I, I don't know. I'm an ultimate optimist. And I think that, I think that, like I said, we live in a time of transparency where, um, it's talked about so much now. I think coaches are going to have, they're not going to be able to get away with being bullies and abusers. So would we have another Bobby? Like, what do you think the Bobby Knight of the world will be okay? Is that, yeah. will we see more Bobby Knight characters or you think that era is done? I think, I don't think the era is done. I think the era is fading out because, um, it, like I said, you have so much out, so much of it has been exposed yeah. and God, we have people like our superstars, like our Michael Phelps, like our Simone Biles that are speaking up about their mental wellness and health. And one of my dear friends, Dr. Bill Parham, um, who was our sports psychologist forever, he last two years ago was put in charge of, for the very first time, the NBA has a health and wellness program for NBA players. And um, it, I just want to say one thing that you mentioned, um, Brene Brown and vulnerability. And this lot on, on these really top of the line coaches, the underlying book that we read the entire quarter was Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. And at the end of the quarter, um, every single student, mind you, every student in the class had been, they're either a fifth year student athlete or they're a graduate assistant coach. So they grew up in the world of athletics. Every single one of them said it was the first time in their lives that they ever thought of concepts like vulnerability as, as being a strong characteristic and not a weakness. Yeah, there's definitely a paradigm shift there. Um, big, big questions. Okay, so... Um, the last thing I want to end on, uh, well, two things. I want to go back to what do you think will happen with the NCAA this year and competition? And then I want to talk about joy and then we'll be done. Okay. I Sadly, I wish I had a magic ball and could tell you that we're going to play, that everybody's going to play. Um, I wish that I could tell, hey, football, just switch your sport to spring and you're going to be fine. Uh, but none of us have that magic ball. And we can't see in the future. And um, unlike the professional leagues, where they are getting they are getting a salary and they can opt out to not play, I feel like student athletes are in a different situation. And granted, they can opt out not to 
come back to campus and play. But um, I don't see it happening as much. I don't feel that they would have as big of a voice as like a professional athlete that just says, you know what? I don't know if it was the NBA or football that or baseball that they're going to be given. They were opted to be able to have a $150,000 salary for the year and not play and come back the following year. And some of the players said, you know what? Out of respect and for my my wife and my children, my, my newborn baby, I'm going to take that option. Well, student athletes don't have that an option like that. Um, I don't know. I really, I, it's sad, but you know, you, the truth is if football doesn't play, I don't think any other sport will, will be able to come back. And when you look at, I mean, gosh, just talking to people behind the scenes at UCLA and the debt, the amount of money that we've lost just so far this year, and we had football and we had half of a basketball season is very, 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 very scary for our future. Yeah. No, I think um I think it's I think there's a lot of unknowns in this and um the ripple effect in many different aspects will I think it will surprise us. I think it will be a long time before everything rebounds. Um now, you know what? Magic, let's all like do our I dream a genie blink and we're in the vaccine, you know? Who knows? Uh, I would love that. Um, yeah. Okay, little sound bites here. Um, where you are today, please define winning. What is winning nowadays? Oh, wow, good question. Winning today is being able to go through my day with this refreshment of joy and gratitude and without getting sucked into the fear and the unknown of our political world and our social media world and COVID. And so it really is winning for me is controlling the controllables. What is in my control every day and letting what I can't control, not consume me. And what is your definition of success? Success. Can I just quote Coach Wooden? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's yours. Success truly is, uh, success's definition is success is peace of mind in knowing that you've done the best of becoming the best that you're capable of becoming. And it's all very much along that same line. Success for me is at the end of the day, being able to have some quiet time and have a debrief of my day and being able to go through it and say, was I, was I honest with people? Did I treat people with kindness and care? Um, did I value the people in my life? Did I, was I good and honest to myself? Did I value myself? Um, did I, if I could check off all those little boxes, um, did I not, not eat a whole bag of chips and just eat like a handful? Uh, then I've had a successful day. And the last thing I just want to talk about, you told me that, um, I think it was Kobe who said this, uh, joy is hard work. And I don't think that most people look at joy as hard work. So would love for you to wax poetic on that for 20 seconds and then uh, we'll let you go. Yes, joy, the difference between fun and joy is fun is just kind of like external stuff that happens. You have fun. Joy really comes from an internal sense of pride that you have worked hard. You've been disciplined at something and you have achieved your goal or you've achieved getting better at something that brings you this sense of joy that nobody can take away from you, regardless of whether you win the game or not. And this conversation that Kobe and I did have, you know, we kept coming back to that people should find a way to infuse joy into everything they do. It makes life so much richer. Cool. Anything else you want to share about yourself or what you're up to or projects that you're passionate about as we close here? 
I have a few projects I'm passionate about. I'm writing another book um, based off of my TED Talk, um, which is all about is winning at all cost acceptable and um, defining success. I'm working on actually a few different films, um, gymnastically related. I am excited to be asked to teach this course at UCLA again and possibly a companion course to it. And my dream is I really want to produce an urban nutcracker for film and just prove that when you celebrate diversity, it's actually unifying and not divisive. And I would love for any of your listeners out there um, to that are super interested in the environment to give me a holler because I want to produce a Broadway show once Broadway comes back um, called Trash. And it's about the environment and how we all need to wake the H up and change our lives for the better of our planet. So where can people find you if they do have suggestions or connections on the Broadway stage? Great. Officialmissbell.com. Hey, Lynn Manuel, Miranda, officialmissbell.com. <laughs> and uh, I do want to say one more thing. On on my website, I have my swag, my t-shirt, sweatshirts, blah, blah, blah. And they're really actually very good quality, very soft. I love them. Um but I also have a gaiter, a neck scarf, face mask that can also be used as a headband. And it is really nicely made. It works very, very well. But the best part about it is every dime of the profits goes to help girls that have been rescued from sex trafficking. So if you go to officialmissfile.com and you want to buy your friends some gaiters, please know that they, a, a, they're cute, B, they're they work. And the most important fact is we're helping the community that rescues girls from sex trafficking. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I could chat with you for hours, but we are well over time here and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You as well, Lauren. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Mike. You guys were great. Appreciate it. Thank you to our guests and sponsors. Without them, there would be no Sport Lifestyle Network. If you're listening via Apple Podcast or Spotify, be sure to rate us and subscribe. For more podcasts and to sign up for the newsletter, go to sportlifestylenetwork.com. Again, sportlifestylenetwork.com. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it.